Welcome to Momentum Africa. I'm your host, Hashim Meki. Our show features African leaders that are shifting the paradigms in their fields. We explore themes of leadership, economic development, current challenges, and how these leaders are providing innovative solutions to be catalysts of change in their communities. Here at Momentum Africa, we understand that there are no panacea to all problems. And this is why we examine the following topics. The influence of past and current leaders, economic development, philanthropy, culture, and health within the continent of Africa. Good afternoon and good evening, dear listeners. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome Tosin Akibu from Nigeria. As you will hear in the interview, Tosin is an inspirational leader with over 15 years of experience in designing and implementing development programs in areas of gender equity, social inclusion, public health, with emphasis on women reproductive health, particularly in Africa. Tucson, welcome to Momentum Africa podcast. Thank you very much, Hashim. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I'm, I'm happy to have you. So uh, can we start with, if you can tell us and tell the listeners how you started on your incredible life journey, working and being inspired to do the gender and inclusion work in Nigeria. Thank you, Hashim. I, I always like to start my discussion with um, that kind of question. And thank you so much for asking me. Um, so I'm going, to, I'm going to take you back to something that happened when I was maybe six years old. Um, when it was the usual evening after dinner where young people in the estate where we lived will come together. Some would, would finish up homework. Some it would be to, to play last minute football before they're called in to, to have a bath and sleep. And um, my, my elder sister had a friend who would stop by after dinner and um, you know how young girls will sit and, and will just have a, a lovely time. But this evening, this particular evening, my sister's friend came and she looked very forlorn. She was very sad. And my sister asked what, had, what was wrong. And she said she was to be given off in marriage. At that time, my elder sister was about... Um, um, 13 or 14 um, she was that, that um, her friend now said she was to be given off in marriage to a 77 year old man it was my first time of hearing something like that I never knew parents could give off their daughter as young as that in marriage considering also that I had a sister who was of the same age my sister's friend in no time started crying. And all the, the two of us, all three of us started crying because it meant a lot to us that we wouldn't see her again. She was getting married to someone who was older than her father, who she never met, she didn't know. And I recall very vividly that my sister's friend wanted to be a pilot. Let me tell you, Hashim, that was the last time I saw my sister's friend, went to her house two nights later and she wasn't there. Nobody told us where she was. He just said we wouldn't be seeing her in a while. That was the first port of call for me to know that a father, a mother could give out their baby in marriage to an old person and not allow her be who she wants to be. That was the first part of call for me. Over the couple of years, over the, over the, the years that I've worked um, here in Nigeria, I've met stories similar to my sister's friend's story. Um, and, you know, one, one thing 
led to another, um, you know, this vicious circle of getting married very early, having obstetric fistula, having, um, um, you know, complications post-delivery, having complications with their intimate partner, not being able to achieve their life's dreams, that the culmination of all of that made me focus on what I currently do as regards gender equality and social inclusion. Several years down the line, for me, on a personal note, after I got married, got pregnant, um, um, and had my, my child, I was poorly managed um, by the doctor that took the delivery post-surgery, and I developed infections that resulted in me having the worst form of fistula. I had enterocutinous, meaning that I was leaking stuff from my stomach, fistula, and then I had enterouterine fistula, meaning I was leaking through my uterus and out through my genitals. That was a very horrendous situation for me. And it just put a lot of things in perspective for me that if I, as an adult, got married and based on choice, not because I was forced, and then the system failed me, how much more the young girls out there who got married out of compulsion, and not only did the system fail them, their supposed support system failed them. Their community failed them. The system failed them. And then that's why you see a lot of young girls who are either widowed with two or three children, who are nursing several reproductive health issues, some of which may be um, vesicle vaginal fistula. And so Hashim, that in a nutshell is how I, I, I fit in nicely into the work that I currently do. I do not like to see people deprived of their human rights. I, I take it personal. I do not like people to be cheated just because of a social cultural practice. I do not like to see that people are deprived of being reaching their fullest potential just because she's either a woman or she's a girl and she, she, she knows nothing. I met a couple of people a few years ago um, who we were having a conversation about gender roles. And the young man looked at me and said, you know, I'm a math teacher and I'm going to tell you categorically that the brain of a boy is made specifically to be able to solve math problems. But the brain of a girl cannot solve math, math problems. And so that's why in my class, of course, my math class, I focus more on the male child. That triggered me, Hashim. That, that completely set me off on the spree of, we need to do more with teachers. We need to do more with, with um, stakeholders. We need to do more with gatekeepers. Anybody that has anything to do with young girls, with young women achieving their dreams, we need to do more to let them separate harmful um, social cultural practices, stereotypes, um, masculine hegemonies that they're coming into their jobs with, to separate that and meet their job squarely, facing it knowing that a boy or a girl can emerge as the best. And I, as a duty bearer, have the responsibility to ensure that they reach their fullest potential, whether they're, they, they, it's a boy or whether it's a girl. I've seen instances where I've been told that you're a girl, 
you cannot do this. But I'm grateful for the support system I have. You know, my parents did not train us to say, um, you're a boy, you're a girl. Everything you can do as a human, they give you the opportunity to do it so you can reach your potential. And so in the last 16 plus years, I've worked to ensure that less and less of girls similar to my sister's friend go through the harrowing experience of having to get married by compulsion, get married, you know, early, um, thereby being predisposed to sexual and reproductive health issues. So that's it in a nutshell, Hashim. I see that you are the uh, duty bearer that you mentioned and Nigeria is lucky to have you and particularly uh, girls and women across Africa growing in uh, today are lucky and fortunate to have someone who has dedicated to the cause and the story is just incredible. So thank you for being that. Uh, thank champion. you, Hashem. Thank you. There, there are millions of us out there in Africa. And that's why I'm very pleased with the work you're doing at Momentum Africa, identifying leaders across Africa and giving them the platform to share their story. Thank you. Talking as a leader in implementing these development uh, uh, programs across uh, Nigeria and, and other African uh, areas. And uh, so do you have examples of successful strategies for how you are going about changing this gender norms that has uh, led to the community um, inspiration to be more inclusive and so that you could see the duties that you uh, outline in your story uh, become uh, true in, in Africa and Nigeria in particular? Fantastic, Hashem, and thank you for asking that question. Anytime. Um, I, I always like to take a step back and identify the, the of course, we, we've, we're identifying a problem, um, which in this case would be gender inequality. Um, and then identify who bears the brunt of this inequality the most. In this case would be Let's take, for, for instance, when we're, if we're talking about um, VVF, would be the girl child. While I'm in no way an expert on VVF, I'm in no way an expert on um, sexual reproductive health rights issues, we can take a holistic look at it to say, what can influence the giving away of a young girl in early marriage. How can this influence be a facilitator? How can this influence be a barrier to having her given off in, in marriage at an early age? So when you take that step back and you look at it holistically, you will realize that um, for example, you can take into cognizance the socio-ecological model of things and identify the significant orders within the sphere of influence of this, of this girl. And so the girl will be the nucleus. And then you have her family, you have the community, you have the policy makers, and then you have the wider spectrum of, of um, you know, um, structural um, elements. Now, you cannot come up with a strategy devoid of a critical understanding of this significant orders or this influences in the life of this young girl. If you take a step back, you see that if you, if you, if the, if you have obstetric fistula, which an attendant result could be VVF, and you take a step back from VVF to obstetric fistula, you would reach pregnancy, 
you would read underage pregnancy, you would read being given out in marriage when the reproductive system of the, the child is not mature enough. And so developing a strategy, thinking about a strategy to address this problem of early marriage. You know, it's like um, you have a room full of water and you're mopping, you keep mopping, you keep mopping. You would mop for the entirety of eternity. So long as that water is flowing. But once you identify the source of the leak, the source of that water, and you turn it off or you mitigate it or you block it, then the last of what you have to mop will be the last because the floor will be dry. And so why do parents give out girls at an early age to get married? Who makes the singular decision to give out this child? It starts from the parents, because I, as a mother, can say, yes, this is what's happening in my community. But I, as a mother, decide that even though I got married at 14, my child will go to school, achieve her fullest um, goal, and then make a choice of when to get married. So the attention starts with the direct influence of that child her family. Now, as practitioners, what we should do first is understand the motive why parents give out their child in marriage. In my work, I've discovered that sometimes it's for monetary benefit. Some parents will tell you that they want her to get married early so she doesn't become promiscuous. Some parents will tell you that um, the earlier she gets married, the earlier she's able to become a woman. You know, some very funny, funny reasons like that. Now, rather than make the mistake of going into the community to identify and say, no, this is a problem, stop it. Do we have something else to offer them? Do we have something more attractive to say, let's take a look at this together and decide by yourself what you think is best for your child. You take a look at it. We pieces the pros and the cons. We, we table everything, no gray areas, and then we decide. So in a nutshell, Hashim, strategies should include um, working with the family, identifying who that influencer is within that sphere of influence. It could be her friends, it could be the immediate, and then moving into the immediate community. How can we support this community to shift this harmful practice? And then you take it another notch to the policy level. Policies are nothing without being implemented, without being enforced. At the policy level, what is the government saying? Is the government supporting um, because of one thing or the other, early marriage? Identifying within institutions that support the girl child, for example, the Ministry of Education, they're the ones teachers see students every day, eight hours, even longer than their parents. Are teachers aware of the enormous influence they have on the, the child? Are they equipped to be able to handle that responsibility that they have with the child? And then looking at preventive measures, how do we as practitioners meaningfully engage the community to adopt healthier practices? How do we, you know, support in communities to be able to say, you know, we take a stand. This is what we've done before. And there are myths and misconceptions that are 
wrapped around this practice that if you don't give her out by the age of 14, every child she gives birth to will start to die. We as a community can come together and say, we put a stop to this and there's certain things we can do to ensure that it is adhered to. Now, service providers, I've mentioned the Ministry of Education, but healthcare workers also have a role to play. You have opportunity for community outreaches. Do you talk or you just focus on the health aspect of your, your patients and that's it? Or you look at it from a holistic point of view. You wouldn't be having to struggle to repair a fistula if there isn't obstructed labor, if there isn't underage um, uh, marriage and all of that. So it's a potpourri of a lot of things. Another thing would be the gathering of data, the meaningful gathering of data, and which I know that a lot has been done in the area of VVF. Why do we have this place as a hotspot? In the last one year, we've, we've seen several incidences of, of VVF. Why is this happening? Data can help us take a step back to look at what the costs of a certain um, issue is. So the strategy um, would be um, identifying influencers, identifying critical stakeholders, and building a community, a coalition, a momentum, uh, mobilizing a social movement, and then identifying who would be pivotal in this social in this community movement. So building a coalition, mobilizing the community and providers, policymakers, and all the above. Absolutely. This is very comprehensive uh, strategies. I like that. Thank you, Hashim. <laughs> Thank you for being the, uh, the leader to uh, bring about this uh, change. So in any success, there are often people who you owe your success to. So if I may ask who have been able to inspire you on this um, journey of fulfillment, I can tell through your uh, story that you are passionate about it. So if you can share with our listeners. Thank you, Hashim. It's a long line of influences. If, if we sit down to do an analysis of my social ecological model, you would see a lot of entities in my sphere of influence. But I can never tell the stories without starting from my parents, my mom and my dad. They were phenomenal. They made me see that there is no limit, that there is nothing that can stop me from being who I want to be. They didn't train me to be a girl. They trained me to be first human. They trained me to consider others, to put them first while thinking about myself and to ensure that I was the best human in the room and to ensure that I was the best that I can be. They, I, I, I can't remember growing up to play with a certain toy that was meant for girls. The training was, you're, you're, okay, you've started driving, you know how to change a tire, you can change your plug, you should know when your plug, the plug of your of your car needs to be to be changed. So you don't need to wait for someone to do that for you. And it's the same way they train my brothers. All the women I've met in my career, in my lifetime, in one way or the other, played critical role. One other thing I've learned is that the women I've worked with who walked through a door, didn't shut the door, they left it open. And some had to stretch their hands to pull me through. 
I'll give you an example, and I know this is very close to home for you. In one of my, uh, one of the organizations I worked in, I met a phenomenal lady called Annie. Annie happens to be your wife, Hashim. She is a phenomenal, phenomenal woman. Annie is fantastic with research. She is brilliant. And so when I met her, we clicked immediately. You know, it was, it was, it was very seamless. And she, she taught me a lot of things. She showed me several things. I'm quite strong in qualitative research. She's, she's, um, she's strong in both. The, the, the passion with which she works, the, it's very clear that she has a very in-depth understanding of what she does. And once you have that understanding, you're able to break it down in the simplest format for someone coming in to learn. So Annie is phenomenal. Annie is someone I met and incidentally, your wife. And I, I, I hope she knows what great influence she, she impacted me with when I met her. I have sisters who push me, who tell me every day, just before this interview, I was, I was speaking with my sister and she was, go and share a piece, just a piece of who you are with the rest of the world. And I hope you have more opportunity to do same. That's what she told me. So they, I have women ahead of me who left the door open, but they didn't leave it open. They guided me on how to go through that door. They gave me the agency. They gave me a voice. They strengthened my self-efficacy to be able to be who I am. And I, in turn, am paying back. I have young girls that I mentor, young women that I mentor who have gone on to be accomplished in their areas of interest. And I'm so proud of them. And the only thing that I ask is that they pay it forward also. Thank you for this. Um, <laughs> I'm very, very honored to hear that my wife has been uh, a part of your uh, inspiration and success. So oh, yes, oh, yes, Hashem. It's it, as our African um, proverb says, it takes a village. So it takes a village. Now I know where you get your energy and passion to do what you're saying. And your sister is quite right that you have more than a tiny bit to share. You have a whole, a lot of stories that can inspire uh, Karen, uh, young African leaders, women and girls and leaders who are in policy currently who can learn from your example and to so that we can shift the paradigm for the next uh, generation in Africa and beyond. So uh, throughout your life journey, as you've uh, clearly stated, uh, what has been the greatest failure? I know it doesn't, you know, um, might not have any failure, but uh, if you have any other doubts or setbacks in your life, how did you pause and reevaluate and still uh, kept going? Wow, thank you very much, Hashim. And um, you're welcome. I'd like to talk about failures, you know. Um, when you're making a meal, there are quite a lot of ingredients that make up that meal. And sometimes if you leave out one ingredient, it may not, the meal may not turn out um, as you planned it to be. So I consider failures to be part of the ingredient for where I am today. Um, so I'll be sharing um, some. In the early days of my career, I listened too much to people who said something couldn't be done. I'll give you an example. I had someone tell me that, um, oh, you're in development. 
I think it's too early for you to start in development. Um, development work is good for persons whose children are grown, are in the university, and you don't have to worry about traveling, hopping on one plane to the other, or going into remote villages where you don't have network. Um, you cannot do that because you have, a, you have a toddler, you have a small child. And that almost sunk enough for me to change my career path. Thankfully, this person wasn't a family member. This person was someone I met in the course of the career. And he was so very, he was, you know, he was very sure of what he was saying. But he said it in a way that made me rethink the path that I had chosen. You know, the path that had been laid before me. And at that time, I was in a field that was completely off the field that I had trained for at the university. My first degree um, was in English, modern European languages, and providence, and of course, passion, and of course, um, the trajectory for which I had that interest had taken me into the initial stages of public health. So I was, I was a master trainer, I was a peer educator on adolescent reproductive health, sexual reproductive health, and I was going from one NYC camp to the other. Uh, NYC means the Nigeria Youth Service Corps, you know, going and talking to young people about their sexual reproductive health. And so I started meeting people who studied public health. I started meeting medical professionals. And for once, I started telling myself that I couldn't do this. How can I use English as, as my qualification and talk authoritatively about sexual reproductive health and rights, adolescent health, HIV, you know, and all the other elements. Thankfully, I mentioned to my family and I said, I think this person is right. I may need to change the trajectory of my career. That I even thought of that, her shame is failure. That I allowed someone who didn't know where I was coming from, who didn't know the night I encountered the anguish of a 14-year-old to be given out in marriage to a 77-year-old man who didn't know what the passion was or the resolve was, that I thought about leaving this career because of what was someone's impression is failure. Thankfully, I got myself back and Hashim, I have a master's in public health. I got a scholarship with Johns Hopkins um, to go to Spain for two months and be part of the health policy and management course, which I'm eternally grateful for. And then I studied at the University of Witwatersrand, that's a Wits University in Johannesburg in South Africa where I did social behavior change communications with a qualification in public health, a master's in public health. So that was a failure that I have turned into something positive. So there's no way I go. If you say, oh, what's your qualification? You know, there are public health practitioners here or there are doctors here or there are um, social behavior change scientists here. I can boldly lift my head and say, this is who I am. But it took someone not believing in me and me nearly not believing in myself to get me there. And I'd like to talk a bit more about that, Hashem. I'd like to encourage whoever is listening to me Yes, please. That we shouldn't dwell on failures. We shouldn't dwell on things that didn't go well. We shouldn't dwell on 
on saying, no, I didn't do this well, or somebody said this of me, so maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe, maybe actually I'm not good enough. Do not, please do not dwell on that. I took the failure of the system, the poor, neg the, the negligence after surgery to decide that if I have gone through this, then I can imagine what young girls facing vesicle vaginal fistula are going through. As an individual, as a woman, as a fistula survivor, double fistula survivor, I'm going to be supporting individually, as an individual, I'm going to support women in Nigeria, girls in Nigeria who are facing VVF with repair. So I identify institutions that repair fistula. And I individually, sometimes um, anonymously give money, you know, just so that these women, these girls can have a chance to live their life again. I did not allow the failure of the system define who I am or make me bitter to the point that I do not see the way ahead. Please, if you're listening to me and someone has said something to you that you cannot do this because you're not this, please tell yourself as you're listening to me now that you can do it. You have four children, you have five children. They've told you you can't pursue a PhD. Please get up, go online, talk to someone and begin Take steps in the right direction. Yes, you can. They've told you that you can't be a doctor. You're 50 years old already. Where do you want to start from? Tell yourself, yes, I can. And I want you, I challenge you today to please take a look at your own failures. Take a look at your own setbacks and determine that people coming after you would not have the same setbacks. And even if they meet the same barriers, you would make it easy for them because you have shared your own life experience with them. So yes, we can. And yes, yes. we can get you yes. through it. Well yes. stated, well stated. And uh, this is powerful. How, uh, how do we, uh, in our work, and you've said it, uh, people in their 50s so younger people with families so how do you as a leader balance balance your time and work so that you could get this um life goals and the strategies and ambitions going on in other words what steps do you take to ensure also the well-being uh, if you have people working for you or family that they're also taken care of and they're healthy so that you could pursue uh, your dreams. Never lose sight of yourself. Never lose sight of your passion. Never lose sight of what got you started on the track that you are in the first place. Um, family is important. Family comes first nothing is worth losing family for of course when except when you're you're in danger or you're experiencing violence or there's there's danger where you well in in the in the sphere where you call family but one thing that has helped me is a clear understanding of the kind of work of the kind of commitment of the kind of passion that i have and then having a supportive partner who also understands is also part of the work I do. And then having a support system. It doesn't have to be your family members. Find a support system that have your back, that understand that this is what you're called to do and you have to do it. And then juggle both. Um, do not listen to being told that you can do both or that you can juggle several things um, or that because you're a woman, you cannot, you cannot leave your family 
to go to work every day, stay at home to take care of your family. Believe that you can juggle all at the same time, but please do not lose focus of what matters. Do not lose focus of your health. Do not lose yourself in the process. I tell friends, um, I say spirits do not type on computers. You need your body. And if you do not take care of your body, you lose it as, as quickly as possible. So take care of your body. Self-care is very important. Um, surround yourself with, with a support system. It doesn't have to be your family, but people that understand. So for example, you need to travel. You're a young mother. You need to travel. You can't go with your child. You have a support system that you can leave your child with um, for the time you'd be away. It is possible. Just understand your sphere. Understand what works for you. And yes, you can do it. I have a supportive system. I have a partner that understands and we find a way to juggle this together. How, how would you uh, describe your uh, leadership style? Uh, you know, you, we've talked about it, your opening uh, statement. So if you may, for our listeners that you've just advised, what would be the per se three secret sauces, if I might <laughs> uh, say, that have helped you uh, throughout your journey to become uh, the leader you are today? Okay, so maybe I'm the wrong person to ask. Maybe it would have been one of um, the people I've encountered, but I'll try to say some of the things they've said to me, you know, um, and a little bit of what I know about myself. No matter how tough the work is, no matter how, how tough the pressure is, do not lose your being humane. We're human beings. People are prone to make mistakes. People have things going for them. Sometimes they're going through difficult patches. If I, as a leader, fail to understand that, then I think I have failed. The fact that you, 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 I work in a team and um, gives me the opportunity as a leader to understand each of my team members. If I approach my team members the same way, then I have failed. They're different personalities. They have their different passions. They have their different strengths. They have their different approach to, to work. And so as a leader, you must understand the people you work with. I do not take for granted the, the role of emotions, the role of emotional intelligence. I do not take for granted um, the fact that I lead by example. I'm passionate about the work I do. I'm passionate about um, meeting deadlines. I'm passionate about, sorry, beating deadlines. And I would, I would not be fair if as a leader, I do not make um, room for my team to be able to work together to beat deadlines. Um, I'm also very, very approachable. Um, I'm very, I listen, I listen a lot. So over the years, team members that I've worked with have turned out to be friends. People that I worked with in 2003, in 2002 are still in contact till today, even though we don't get to see as often. I know their children, I know their children's names, I know the, the boyfriend, I know the one that didn't turn out well, I've cried with, with teammates, I've laughed, I've participated in things that are beyond office. Because I believe, Hashim, that memories are very important. We do not always have forever. We do not always have a long time to be with people that we have the opportunity to work with 
for you, you the highest you can work with someone for 20 years 25 years 30 years but the memories we create is very key it's very important um and within that memory being very professional within that memory being very hardworking within that memory, being very passionate. And within that memory, being very, very, very um, um, knowledgeable about the area of work you're doing. I think those are very critical. So the memories we create, we need to cherish them and be present to uh to make uh, worthy of the times uh, I hear. Uh, well said. Uh, what advice do you have for developing the next uh, African uh, uh, woman leaders in particular, but use in general uh, leaders for the future um, in Nigeria, but also uh, across Africa? And uh, then one more question and we would uh, conclude. I believe it's very critical to look at what is currently happening around Africa, borrow a leaf, look at what, what is currently working, what is not working, and determine to make the most of it when you have the opportunity. I believe that young people should not wait. Now is the time. I remember as, as a young girl, they would tell, tell us we're the leaders of tomorrow. Tomorrow is now. Tomorrow is today. So go for it. You're the leaders. Go for it. Be the best that you can be. Um, I'm not talking of starting with a political party. If that's what you want to do, go ahead. But within your, your um, immediate environment, lead. Leave by example. There's nothing stopping you. Realize that if you're considered a young person, already you have someone behind you looking up to you. If you're 14, you're 15, you're 18, you're 25, you have six-year-olds that are looking up to you. You have eight-year-olds that are looking up to you. No matter what position you are, there's someone looking up to you. Be that change. Yes, a lot of things are not going well right now, but I challenge you to stop as an individual and look inwards and say, what change can I make? How can I contribute to this? I give you an example, Hashem. Um, during the lockdown in 2020, the, the, the initial lockdown um, during COVID-19, at the early stages of COVID-19, I beg your pardon, um, some of the centers for receiving um, persons who have experienced gender-based violence, some of those centers were not functioning. Women opened up their homes to receive other women who were locked in with the enemy. Opened their houses and said, come with your child. Just come, just come and stay. We'll, we'll, we'll rough it out, but I want you to know this place is safe for you. They didn't wait for government. They didn't wait for a policymaker. These women thought, what can we do as fellow women to support other women? That's the challenge I'm putting forth to young people all over the world and most importantly in Africa. What can you do? How can you start? What little, no matter how little you consider it, there's something you can do to make impact, to make a change. And just keep chipping at it. Just keep, just keep at it. Before you know it, it becomes something very big. So I challenge you to look inwards and say, as an individual, what can I do? So with that, um, do you have any final thoughts uh, I know you mentioned the pandemic. Uh, how has it uh, shifted your uh, scope of work in this field in Nigeria? Hashim, it has made me realize you can work from anywhere and get results. You don't have to sit behind a desk um, eight to five. 
you can work remotely, you can network remotely, you can connect remotely, you can commute remotely and get stuff done. Um, I think it's, it's a new call for us to challenge ourselves, to see things from a different perspective, to say, I've been hearing the word new normal, uh, um, building back better. We need to leverage on what the pande pandemic has done, um, what it has left in its wake and say, what's the most we can make of this? A lot of young people, I'm so proud, young people have come up with different things. They've used coding, they've used technology to address significant problems during this pandemic. There's more that can be done. There's more that we can leverage on. There's more that we can look inwards and say, yes, I think this is some good thing coming out of this pandemic. But most importantly, I think the pandemic has made us see that there's no box. Rather than thinking out of the box, I think we can think without limits. We can, we can um, imagine without limits. And the good thing is, once you can think it, then it can come to fruition. Thank you so much, uh, Tucson uh, Ikipo. I've had the honor of uh, talking to you and uh, thank you for this uh, concluding optimistic outlook for Nigeria and Africa and the girls and what to come. And I am truly, truly honored that uh, you've had the time for us to sit down and, uh, and uh, have this discussion. So thank you, thank you so much. Thank you very much, Hashim, and it's, it's my honor. It's a tremendous privilege for me to be on Momentum Africa. And um, thank you for the good work you're doing for you. young people in Africa, for leaders in Africa. And I hope to see more. Um, I look forward to more interactions and um, my warmest regards to Annie and thank her for me for the tremendous impact she had on we'll, me when we met. We'll do, we'll do. One final thought come to my mind. How would people... Yes. Uh, connect with you uh, if uh, our listeners uh, want to connect with you? Um, I'm on Twitter. That's the fastest way to connect. Um, and my Twitter handle is at Twitter. Um, or you just search for Tosin Akibu. You would find me um, to number two, W-E-T-A, Twitter, at Twitter. <laughs> Easy enough. Thank you so much. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Thank you, You're Hashim. Okay. Thank you. Appreciate it. Bye. Bye.